0: Liz Wolf, a writer for Reason. Uh, Liz, do you want to introduce yourself with any additional credentials that I forgot to mention?
1: Yep, I write for Reason. I am confusingly both a stoner and a pro-lifer, which some of my Twitter followers have commented on uh, since I published a pro-life piece this morning. They're like uh, very amused and tickled by this whole juxtaposition. But yeah, I've been at Reason for maybe three and a half years or so, and my writings also scattered across the internet at Playboy and Daily Beast and National Review and Washington Examiner.
0: Yeah. So uh, we are talking on Friday, May 6th, and we are talking, as you may have surmised, about the inevitable, it seems, fall of Roe v. Wade, which it seems like this was first reported like a million years ago, but it was actually just Monday night, right, when this leak from the Supreme Court was published in Politico?
1: Yep, exactly. Um, It was basically Justice Alito who um, had penned this draft opinion that was somehow leaked somehow released to the public and there's been a lot of focus both on the substance of the draft but also on who leaked it and how that will be found out and what possible consequences for them will look like
0: yeah. You know, we can speculate maybe at some point in this conversation about the identity of the leaker, which I have no real theories on. I would be curious to, to find out who it is. Um, but, Liz, you know, you're uh, on the pro-life side. I've always been a pro-choicer. I was raised by a rabid second wave feminist. So I think this was sort of inevitable for me. Um but I really wanted to have you on, not just because I think it makes for a more interesting conversation for you know for two people who don't agree to hash this stuff out respectfully, um, but also because I feel as though what I've seen coming out of my side in the wake of this piece in Politico has been very emotional. There's been a lot of perhaps understandable grief and rage, and you know a huge amount of anger at the court and at the uh, conservative justice and the conservative president, you know, who put them there. Um, But it's all quite emotional and there's very little forward looking discussion, which is really sort of what I'm most interested in is the question of what happens next. What does this mean? So uh, I'm glad that you were able to join me today. And you did publish a piece this morning in Reason, which I thought was really interesting. Um, it answers a bunch of questions that I think people may have about how one can be both libertarian and pro-life, but I think it also raises a bunch of things. Um, so do you want to talk just at the outset about you know, what it's like to be a pro-life libertarian, how you square these things, and how this impacts your view of the uh, you know, apparently impending ruling on Roe? Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: So I have long held, um, even during positions, I should also clarify before I get started that I am sick. I realized after my stonery introduction that like, maybe it sounds like I've been taking grout bong hits, (laughs) but I have not in fact been doing that. I've been working very hard this week. Um, yeah, the way I look at pro-life libertarianism, um, it, I was raised Catholic, but I wouldn't say that these beliefs are particularly rooted in Catholic doctrine. Um, they've been pretty consistent uh over the course of my time as an atheist um and i think they are compatible with my feminism though many people disagree with that i sort of consider myself like a the lone 26 year old second wave feminist uh, i'm not really a fan of a lot of the fourth wave feminist movement that we see today but in terms of how that's compatible with pro-life beliefs i mean i am one of those people who believes not only that life begins at conception but also that we don't have a clear and consensus way of drawing a line at any other point in pregnancy. We draw that line sometimes at viability, but tech advancement means that that line of viability is constantly moved up. So, right now, that's around 22 to 24 weeks. But, you know, we're seeing over the course of time, as medical technology advances, that line being moved up. And so, I struggle with the idea that viability is contingent on. Our medical know-how, and I see that as a flimsy way of deciding uh, personhood. So, in the absence of any sort of clear way to draw these lines, I draw that line extremely, incredibly early. I guess probably at, at you know conception, implantation um, the very, very, very beginning of a pregnancy. And I think some of this is also rooted in a scientific understanding of what happens at the different stages of fetal development, which I think a lot of people get super wrong. Like in a ton of us blue States, like California, New York, um, Virginia, you can abort up until week 24 or week 25. And I think people don't quite realize what, uh, fetal development looks like at week 24. At that point, your baby is the size of an ear of corn. All of its major organs are developed. It has the capacity to feel pain. Um, Its heart like, fully functions and works. It has eyebrows and eyelashes. It has like a thin layer of fat on its body. Um, It's like for all intents and and purposes, very much uh, what we would consider to be like a human baby. And so I, I find it to be really bizarre that we draw the line so late in pregnancy. And I also think it's really out of step with the way So many European countries approach this. The vast majority of highly developed Western European nations draw the line at like 12 weeks, some of them at 14 weeks. So this is an area where weirdly like the left in the US is really discontent with restrictions on abortion that disallow you to abort in the second trimester. But in most of Europe, you're only allowed to abort within the first trimester. And so that's sort of an area that I I see as like a really weird inconsistency that makes it contributes to toxicity in our abortion debate. Uh, and I wonder how much of that could be trimmed away if we came to a more moderate conclusion. Mm.
0: So, I think that something that's important to note is that the 12 week or 14 week cap on abortions in European nations and in Scandinavian countries um, it does exist, but it's mainly for elective abortions. If you have like a medical need, um, you know, you have a grave threat to your health or there's certain birth defects involved, um, you can obtain an abortion in the second trimester in European countries.
1: Which we should also note that the trigger laws that are currently in place basically, there's 13 U.S states where if Roe does get overturned, these states will automatically uh, have abortion be outlawed. I actually did realize that most of them, actually all of them have exceptions carved out for life of the mother abortions. Like if the mother's life is endangered, abortion remains legal in those states. So in Mississippi, in Texas, um, in Georgia, if your life is endangered, you can still get an abortion. And a decent number of them also have exceptions carved out out for rape and incest. Mm -hmm. So it is worth noting that, like, even in some of the most aggressive and least lenient states, they are carving out those exceptions, though some of them are doing it very poorly.
0: I was going to say, you know, I think that you have what the letter of the law says, and then you have what happens when it's actually enacted. Um, I'm sure that you have also heard these horror stories about women whose, you know, whose babies have died, um, you know, who are basically forced to carry the pregnancy to term and give birth to a dead child um, that's been that's been dead for quite a long time because of you know doctors who are fearful of what will happen if they go ahead with an abortion procedure that's been technically you know, made illegal. I am curious, though, um, you know, I think that what makes your position unusual or rather a pro-life position a little unusual in the libertarian world is, um, you know, generally the consensus in libertarian spaces amongst libertarian people is that the less involvement of the state in something like a, a bodily autonomy situation or a private medical decision, the better. So, being personally pro life and and you know defining a life as beginning at conception does that mean that you think that the state really has a, like a very appropriate role here that the best way to kind of enforce this is with government power
1: yeah this is an area i struggle with but i think i come down ultimately and i, I sort of don't flush this out in public very frequently um because i think it's it's fraught and i want to think it through for like another like five years or something. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that I think that the state has a compelling interest in protecting, um, the rights and the lives of the unborn. The problem is enforcement of this like incredibly intimate issue is so sticky. So one thing I noted in my piece, and I think you, you note this, uh, and, and are very like up on this type of thing is like, Some of these GOP legislators are crafting laws that would um, create consequences for abortions that are administered when a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, for example, which, you know, you and I both know that's when a a pregnancy, when a fetus is a, a baby, an embryo, whatever, is developing in the fallopian tubes and it medically cannot stay there. That's not the uterus. It's not the place where it can grow and receive the nutrients that it needs. And at a certain point of growth, it threatens to burst the fallopian tubes and to really endanger the life of the mother in an absolutely horrific way. It's it's a medical emergency, and it's something that needs to be dealt with via abortion. Um, It's not even really considered an abortion. Like, it's not in the same category as elective abortion, Uh, and yet some GOP legislators are failing to grasp those distinctions. So that's something I'm very concerned about. I'm also really concerned about a few other things, one of which is there are lots of women out there who engage in neglectful and bad behavior during their pregnancies, either deliberately or unintentionally, that causes them to miscarry. And so I'm very worried about state scrutiny into their decision-making and their behavior. We saw that with the really highly publicized case of Brittany Pula, um, a woman who I think had been taking meth during her pregnancy, uh, but also had all kinds of other fetal abnormalities and problems with the the baby and, you know, was ultimately incarcerated by her state, despite the fact that she miscarried, I think before the legal limit of abortion in that state. And so it's stuff like that, where it's like, I'm not sure I want to get into a situation where, uh, prosecutors are scrutinizing, you know, pregnant women's meth use and whether that contributed to miscarriage meth use in pregnancy is a horrible thing to do, but, I am not sure that incarcerating her is the right answer or them attempting to put pregnant women quite literally on trial for the behaviors that they engaged in while pregnant. I'm also worried. The last thing I'll say, I know I'm talking too much, is um, when women seek out abortions in a, a paradigm where abortion is illegal, when women seek them out, one of the big things that happens nowadays, it's not back alley, like coat hangery abortions, but Abortions that are done unsafely in any manner um, can really lead to infection. And so I do think that the best possible way we could craft laws is to allow women to show up at hospitals and admit the procedure that they procured and be able to seek treatment for infection because infection is actually very easy to treat prior to a woman going into sepsis. And that's a huge way we can lop off maternal mortality, which is absolutely a risk we run in a post-roe world. So that's something that I always want to Bring into the conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of what you uh, what you just addressed um, was stuff that I was going to ask you about, and I think that on the you know on the pro-choice side, one of the things that inflames people so much is stuff like the ectopic pregnancy law, where there's this sense that the person drafting the laws is not just um, perhaps you know motivated by the wrong the wrong sentiments or you know motivated by a desire to punish women for having sex and for getting pregnant Um, you see less of that rhetoric now than you used to when people would like scream about the slut So you want birth control on the Senate floor.
1: I feel like I have been a slut who wanted birth control. So like (laughs) I'm I'm in an awkward position as a pro-lifer. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, we should talk about the birth
0: control thing. But there's also this sense that, you know, the people who are doing this, who are making these arguments aren't just doing it for, you know, for the wrong reasons. They're coming out from the sort of puritanical place, but they're also, um, I I don't know how to put this, but incredibly stupid. And they don't understand like uh, some some basic biology, the fact that uh, an ectopic, pregnancy is basically a ticking time bomb. It's never going to become a human child. All it will do is threaten the life of the woman that it's existing inside. So, you know, when you even, to even put that language in a bill, I think calls into question the judgment of the person writing it. It's like, what, what are you doing? What provoked you to even attempt this?
1: Oh, I completely agree with that. It's like on Twitter, people constantly accuse us of concern trolling and stuff like that. But I think legitimately, there is a lot of these, um, a lot of cases where these legislators are gesturing or signaling that they're concerned about something without, uh, in my view, necessarily having particularly authentic beliefs and without thinking through a lot of the consequences of those beliefs. And I think that's really inexcusable.
0: Mm, yeah, well, I suppose too because this issue has situated itself in the way that it did, where we've spent 50 years with one single Supreme Court decision that was always perceived by both sides as being somewhat shaky, being the only thing standing between us and a post-Roe world, you know, where we would revert back to uh, abortion as a state-by-state matter. I think that that's really allowed the debate to polarize in ways that it might not have if... There was a requirement that you like play well with others to try to advance legislation on the federal level that might establish some both some limitations on abortion, but also some protections for women's bodily autonomy earlier on in the pregnancy, similar to the way that European countries have done it. It seems like because. We've just been kind of on both sides, either seeking to protect the integrity of a liberal court or on the conservative side to hammer at the court to, you know, try to get some case in front of it at the right time, the right case that would cause, you know, at last somebody to to flip on row. Um, It's basically made it impossible to have an actual discussion about any of its. its just dominated by the most extreme voices on both sides.
1: Oh completely it's it's really despicable and I look at pro-lifers and pro choicers as equally to blame there. I mean one thing I think about a lot um, and I don't want to derail it, but I do think some of these statistics are interesting and I'm curious about your thoughts. Like when I look at abortion statistics about who um, obtains them, it really leaves me in this very conflicted place. Like on one hand, the vast majority of abortions are performed in the first trimester. In fact, of those, the vast majority are performed before week eight. So that's super, super early in a pregnancy. That's very soon after a woman knows she's pregnant. Um, At that point, you know, if you look at the embryo or the fetus or whatever you want to term it, it really doesn't resemble a baby at all. It, um, you know, its heart is beginning to develop, but most of its major organs aren't developed. It's incredibly like tiny at that point. That's what the majority of America, uh, of of abortions in America look like. Um, But I think it's also really interesting, like there's... There's so many parts of abortion statistics that are actually, I think, lend a lot of credence to the pro choice side and make abortion seem a lot less gruesome than pro lifers portray it as. And I really see like the earliness with which people seek abortions as part of that. But then I also look on the flip side and I think like some things that pro choicers are really reticent to talk about are like, in all areas of policymaking, we look at things and whether they have a racially disparate impact. This is like a huge thing that a lot of the left cares about right now, you know, paying attention to, um, you know, whether we're like paying attention to like the the legacy of redlining and the degree to which banks uh, today might possibly be engaging in discriminatory practices when lending to Black families. This is something that the left is really hypersensitive to and for good reason. But then when it comes to Abortion—that's a sort of a weird blind spot. Where, like, in New York City, for example, there are more Black babies who are aborted than born alive. Um, The abortion rate is really, really high among Black mothers, and so there's some stuff like that that is, I think, really, really damning um, to that side of it. As well as, like, you know, a lot of the a lot of people will point to the fact that the serial abortion getter is a myth, but. I mean, if you look at the statistics, it's something like 60% of women are seeking an abortion for the first time, but then I think 19% of women are seeking their third or fourth abortion. So there is some truth and validity to that statistic. And I don't know what bearing that ought to have on our moral judgments of it, but I do think it's important to talk about it accurately as it happens, as it exists in the real world. Yeah, mm-hmm. obviously it's impossible to implement like a coupon
0: system where, you know, you guys, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you've you've punched your you've punched your card 5 times, you don't get to have any more abortions. You do cool. get a free ice cream sundae. <laughs>
1: uh, there's also like that question of like, well, if you do legitimately believe that abortion is a a pretty innocuous, uh perfectly morally reasonable thing to do, why would it matter if it's your fifth abortion, right? Like to Mm -hmm. me, that's a revolting premise. And I think lots of people have this visceral aversion to that because we see that as even regardless of our bona fides here, we see it as irresponsible. We see it as unseemly. But legitimately, from the moral stance of like this doesn't matter very much, why why, why would it matter if it's your fifth or sixth abortion?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that this maybe relates somewhat to the reluctance to talk about the racial disparity in abortion rates um for fear of seeming judgmental of like another cultural group or another demographic to which we don't belong. Um, I think that, you know, you see, you saw this, um, especially in the in the 90s, when this was uh, a topic under discussion, people would talk about, quote, unquote, using abortion as a form of birth control. Um, You know, the idea being that, like, if you were just kind of casually having unprotected sex, you know, saying, well, if I get pregnant, I'll just abort that that was distasteful to people. And I think it's reasonable for it to be distasteful to people. But if there's a perception that that's an attitude that is more prevalent in certain communities, um, then people get nervous about being critical of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very thought crimey thing to talk about. And there's lots of reasons why the abortion rate, like lots of very obvious reasons why the abortion rate might be higher um, for Black women than for their white counterparts. You know, one of this is like the terrible legacy of mass incarceration, which is like very directly a US government policy that has screwed lots of people's lives up um where if you have conceived a child with somebody but they're now in prison or in jail it, i can understand trepidation about bringing a kid into the world or any other situation where there's like any amount of um you know we see like rates of black father absenteeism as higher in the black community and among poor people specifically than we do in other demographics, which again, I know is not something you're supposed to talk about in polite society and polite company. But I think we are doing ourselves a disservice as journalists if we look at reality and then fail to describe it appropriately. And that's definitely like a reason that I can see as contributing to this racial disparity in abortion rates. There's also the component of like black women have more unintended pregnancies than their white counterparts do. And so it makes sense why prevalence of abortion might be higher among that demographic group. But again, I mean, people can try to cancel me for these various statistics that are true things that we observe in the world. But I think it's actually very, very important to be very clear about who seeks abortion and for what reasons and how that can be fixed.
0: Do you happen to know how this data breaks down along class lines?
1: Yeah. So it's super interesting. I think it's like some 50% of women who seek abortions are at the poverty line or below. And then about 25% are pretty solidly middle-class. And then the last 25% is they're like upper middle-class women, like pretty rich women. So it's interesting because it's like, yes, it is poor people who are seeking abortions primarily. Like that's the biggest sliver, but there's also this whole contingent, which is like college educated, um, Richer women who are oftentimes disproportionately white who already have kids at home. So you're sort of like, you know, PMC, professional managerial class woman also seeks abortions at, you know, a surprising rate, I think, to many people.
0: Mm. I also wonder how you know in that demographic how age relates to it um you know obviously as you get older you're more likely not only to you know have an oops baby where you're like I don't want to give birth at the age of 45 or whatever but also more likely to discover that your baby has birth defects that might make the pregnancy non-viable so I think that obviously there's so many moving parts here it's impossible that we're going to be able to analyze it but it is yeah as you said you know it's all data it's out there and it's worth digging into if you're going to ever have a conversation about this.
1: Well, the interesting thing is like, I think for a long time there in the 80s and 90s, when the teen pregnancy rate was way higher than it is today, the women who were seeking abortions were people in their teens and people in their early 20s. But now that's really shifted. So like 30% of abortion seekers um, are between the ages of like 25 and 30, which I think is really interesting. A decent chunk of them are in their 20s, like early to mid-20s, and then a decent chunk of them are also in their early 30s. But those are the predominant groups who are seeking abortions today. And in terms of like teens seeking abortions, it's honestly a really, really small percentage, um, especially compared to what it used to be.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, the, we do know that the youth are not having sex anymore. So um, I suppose they're <laughs> probably getting unintendedly pregnant, uh, unintentionally <laughs> pregnant less also. Um, So let's return to the question of outlawing this behavior Um, and not just outlawing it, but trying to regulate it in any way. I think that there's a really interesting tension here when you start talking about the rights of a fetus or you want to call it a person, um, you know, obviously you've got an embryo, it's on its way to becoming a person. It will eventually be born if nobody steps in. then you have the rights of the adult human woman who is housing this entity in her body, um, and, you know, who has desires and needs uh, of her own. So I think it really kind of gets to not just questions of, you know, where does the state come in? um, But there's this philosophical question of what we owe to each other, and where you start to draw the line, as you were talking about between, you know, having an abortion and experiencing a miscarriage because you did something wrong. And what I think is interesting is that, Obviously, we have the example of the woman who smoked meth when she was pregnant, and we cannot kind of all categorically look at that and say, well, she really shouldn't have done that, whether or not you think she should be incarcerated for it. That was obviously a bad idea. But taken to its logical conclusion, you could really start to like side-eye an awful lot of innocuous behaviors. You know, you could argue that women who continue to ride in cars or continue to own cats while they're pregnant are taking unjustifiable risks to the health of the fetus that they're carrying. So is this something where, do you see a bright line there?
1: How do we even begin to untangle that? I mean, you can also point to, I think, the even more obvious thing, which is that like a lot of women drink before they know they're pregnant or even continue to drink after they know they're pregnant. To maybe a degree that other women aren't comfortable with, like this is a huge thing. Um, pregnant women, people are very judgy about pregnant women's behaviors, but everybody ultimately draws their risk tolerance line in a different place, and so I'm very worried about what happens when you have these like snitches and narks who are empowered to try to um, voice their opinions on the be- on what pregnant women do and try to get them in trouble for making different decisions than they personally would make. I think one of the best. Here's the problem. I think the best way of handling all of this would be to sometimes we have laws on the books that aren't enforced, or there's some amount of prosecutorial discretion that's granted to allow them to do a little bit of a more discerning case-by-case judgment call in terms of what they go after. That is, I think, the preferable, the most preferable outcome for me. However, we all know that that is not how Republican legislators will be crafting laws. And that's not how a lot of prosecutors will be functioning. And so in an ideal world where I could wave my magic wand and create the laws, which would also be like a way better and more fun world than the one we're currently living in, there would be like (laughs) no taxes and we would all go to like a ton of parties and like, we'd just eat caviar a lot. I don't know how we would get it, but we would eat it all the time. Um, Everybody would smoke cigarettes, but even aside from that, I do think that the, the magical mythical world that I would create would involve some amount of the state clearly sending a, a message that it is morally pretty abominable to, to abort a child, but also recognizing that, hey, for the really, really early stages and for miscarriage and for possible neglect cases in those early stages, it is it, it imposes too high of a societal cost for prosecutors to to try to sift through all of the different behaviors of a pregnant woman. And so the last thing we want is to create tip lines to report the behavior of women that might be negligent early in a pregnancy. Like that's not the society that we want to create. um, And that's not where we ought to sort of concentrate our law enforcement power and our um, sort of like legal resources. Mm. That's how I would look at it. But like, that's obviously disconnected from how this will play out, right? Like that's not my approach that I'm thinking through is not how a shitty lawmaker in Georgia is thinking about this. And so I'm very attuned to that inconsistency and that problem, but I don't think that's reason to like throw the baby out with the bathwater or um, whatever more gruesome metaphor we could create. I don't think that's reason to just abandon attempting to craft laws altogether when it comes to protecting what I see as an individual who has rights
0: hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that there's some overlap here uh, in the problems that we experienced trying to, for instance, institute non-pharmaceutical interventions to control the spread of COVID, where you had policies that might ostensibly work, but then the policy itself is only as, as good as people's ability to follow it. So, you know, there's there's what would work in an ideal world full of, you know, full of caviar and guns. Is caviar technically like a whale abortion? Just, just wondering. It doesn't hurt me like,
1: is, there's an irony to me being like, ah, yes, protecting life at all stages is valuable, and then I'm like, but we should eat fish eggs all the time. Yes, hundreds yeah. of
0: thousands of fish eggs. <laughs> Think of the carnage that you're causing. Honestly,
1: I just, I, I I'm against fish sperm, and I'm like against fertilized <laughs> fish eggs, but like the eggs on their own need to be taken care of. You know, I've got it. I'm against. Uh, down with fish sperm.
0: It should be outlawed. All fish should be castrated.
1: Honestly, I'm against a lot of sperm. It's all just like extremely weird. Eggs are yeah. much better. <laughs> Have you ever eaten fish sperm? Um, Not to my knowledge. Have yeah. you?
0: actually well i mean i don't know like if you swim around with your mouth open in a body of water like who knows what's in there but i actually have eaten cod (laughs) milt um which they they use as like a a creamy batter on zucchini flowers in some japanese cuisines
1: oh that's wild oh i make such good um like fried zucchini flowers whenever i'm in new york and can get some good old italian ingredients
0: yeah, that's uh, I was at a, a Japanese restaurant in Williamsburg with my husband and I ordered the the creamy cod milk fried zucchini flowers and I made sure to obscure from my husband the truth about what we were eating until he'd already <laughs> put one in his mouth and then mm-hmm. I told him.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Um I am curious though, I feel like we could probably talk about caviar and um various other bougie things for the entire time. Um, which I think we will do in like two weeks when you come down to Austin, which will be really fun. <laughs> but I yes. am curious, like, what do you, you know, you're somebody who's more pro-choice um, by a significant degree than I am. Are there areas where you see your own side going too far or are there areas where you see them as making such such a compelling point? Like, Like, what are the sort of light sides and dark sides of pro-life and pro-choice people as you see it?
0: So, I mean, I think overall that it's, it's just not great for the state to be involved in this. I think that you know, as soon as bureaucrats start walking into you know a, a private decision that involves a person's body, whether it's you know what you're what you're putting in one end or what you're taking out of the other, um, and that includes abortion, <laughs> that it you know it just it makes things needlessly complicated. Um, you know, people needlessly suffer. I think, by and large, that women and I, I think this is actually borne out by the data that shows how early the majority of women seek abortions. That women. can't can be trusted to be responsible about this. I don't think, despite the coarsening of the debate, and you were asking, you know, do I do I see places where the pro-choice side has aired? I think some of the kind of crass cheerleading that you see in like the shout your abortion coffee table book and, and so on, like I think that's alienating, and I think a lot of people find it gross. But that's not really the norm. Um, I yeah. think most women see abortion as something that's unfortunate, something that like Not something to be ashamed of, but something, you know, that you shouldn't be celebrating because it's a sad thing, you know, to have accidentally started a life that you don't intend to see through. I should also say like my feelings about abortion personally, like what I would do if I had an unwanted pregnancy have evolved in the extreme since I was a 16 year old, you know, having sex with my shitty boyfriend as opposed to now when I'm 40 and I'm in a, you know, a 14 year marriage with the same guy. So, you know, being conscious of that I want to acknowledge that people feel very differently about this, even over the course of a single life, you know, at different stages in your life, you may feel differently about it. What I would love to see happen, and the thing that makes me angry that it hasn't happened, is that we don't have any national legislation, and we never have, to try to codify some of the rights enshrined by Roe into statute law, um, which would make it... I think there's just a better chance, if you do it that way, of arriving at a solution that maybe nobody is truly happy with, but everyone can agree upon for the sake of it not being something worse. And I was sort of thinking about this. I, I wrote about this for Unheard. You know, what would what would this look like? And I think that. You would want to see compromise from the pro-choice side. Um, You would want to see less of the kind of coarsening of the discussion around abortion. Um, You would want more acknowledgement that for most women, it's not something that they like super duper wanted to do or planned on doing with enthusiasm. Um, I think that we need to confront the incredible unpopularity of second trimester abortions um, and you know and stop trying to kind of hammer that as anything except something that happens under very unfortunate circumstances when it's medically necessary. Um, I think that there's been this real sort of leaning into the idea of like abortion on demand for any reason, don't you dare question us. Um, and that's again, it's alienating. On the other side, I think, you know, the pro-life folks, um, if they haven't already need to stop with the kind of sexual prudery and and quaint moralizing. Um, stop screaming about sluts on birth control. Like Birth control should be thrown at everybody, even people who don't want it, just in case. Like we should we should be mailing it to people's houses unbidden um, to try and reduce the number of unintended pregnancies.
1: Also, if you think about, I mean, the safety of over the counter birth control, where there is some risk of blood clots, but generally speaking, it's like extremely safe this is something where we could be making it really easy for people to get in pharmacies. Uh, and mm-hmm. right now we sort of do that to some degree with plan B. And I know like in, in Mexico, for example, you can get misoprostol, one of the drugs that is used for a first trimester abortion. Um, but like, those are like at least misoprostol more dangerous than if you just provided people over-the-counter hormonal contraceptives. So I'm very confused by why that isn't the sort of absolute top priority for everybody to be focused on.
0: Yeah, it seems like that is an area on which almost everybody can agree, you know, with the exception of a few hardliners who don't believe in, you know, manipulating one's Eggs in that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they also don't eat caviar, but um, <laughs> you know. But that you know to to improve access and you know even screening for like the blood clot issue, I believe is done through um, just like a blood pressure screening, which is something that you can do on site in a pharmacy. Lowering the bars to access for the most reliable forms of birth control, the pill, the patch, the ring, um, IUDs for those who want them, I think would go a long way toward you know preventing unintended pregnancies and thus preventing a lot of abortions. So if folks on the pro-life side aren't gung ho about that, I would really like to know why.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm curious, do you have any moral intuitions surrounding when you think life begins?
0: I haven't really thought about that. Um I mean I had a similar experience to what Caitlin Flanagan describes uh, in her really excellent essay on this, which I'll link to in the show notes, where she talks about how somebody tried to reassure her that, you know, most abortions take place before 12 weeks. And she went and looked up what does a 12 week fetus look like? And she said that she wished she hadn't. So I did the same thing. I went and looked up what it looked like. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a recognizably human Child to be.
1: Whoa! That. When did you look it up? I'm so curious. Like recently? Um,
0: no, it was a few years ago when okay. that when that first came out. I've always been personally, um, and you know, I do I do see this as just like. A matter of personal autonomy and responsibility above all. So personally, I've always taken great pains to make sure that I did not get pregnant. Um, so I haven't had to think about this very hard, like in any kind of way that was salient to my own life. It's always been a purely intellectual exercise for me.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I've been probably slightly less um, cautious with that than you have, because I've had two unintended-ish pregnancies, one of which resulted in a miscarriage. And one of which resulted in literally me being pregnant right now. Oh. Um, Yes, which I- Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sort of. I mean, (laughs) it's been very funny to be like um, tepid on this, but sort of making peace with it. I'm about 18 weeks pregnant right now. And it's interesting because it's like that's thoroughly second trimester, but also before the line of viability. And so covering this and having convictions that were always very much- aligned with this like pro-life libertarian perspective, but also simultaneously being pregnant and being especially attuned to like, I can feel my son's movements inside of my uterus, which is a really bizarre and interesting thing that I think a lot of people don't realize happens at you know, as early a stage as 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely added some texture to sort of how I look at this type of thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, when you were asking, you know, do I have any sense of like when life begins? Um, I mean, what I what I keep thinking about is that there are lots and lots of things that, that aren't a human life and that literally are not even human at all and never would be. Um, you know, things like an anthill filled with ants or like a bunch of baby tadpoles that might eventually be frogs. Um, And, you know, obviously I don't think that these things are as valuable morally, um, you know, ethically as something that would eventually become a person. But I also would be disturbed to see somebody like callously and cavalierly just destroying them, you know, without thought. So, the question of whether, you know, is this a human life or when does human life begin is interesting, but I think it's not even really the whole picture.
1: I That's so interesting because I think like, I don't know, I struggle a lot with, and I, I almost feel like there are so few venues to actually even like have this conversation, but I struggle a lot with people talking about like the potential human life as they sort of term it and this idea of like, well, like, I don't know, I, I don't see... It's hard for me to know what potentiality means versus actual substantive metaphysical reality, and like even at a very very early stage, the the embryo or the fetus that exists is is real, and if left undisturbed and uninterrupted, it it will with if you do nothing, it will become a human person. Um, and I really struggle with this sort of like the degree to which I think so much of the pro-choice side I think doesn't isn't as interested in the question of like, where do you draw the line? But I really see that as the crux of everything. Um, And I really struggle to understand like where other people come to on that front. But also at the same time, like I'm super attuned, especially now to the fact that like, when you experience an unintended pregnancy, there is a sense of despair. I don't wanna go into all of the details about my situation with um, this baby that I am keeping, but it was not great. And it was not easy to um, to come to terms with. I wasn't in a good place. And it, it left me with a sense of much greater appreciation for the despair that women must feel, especially women in situations much worse than mine. Um, I never had a moment where I had to worry about financially being able to afford this baby. And like that alone is just a huge piece of it that I am grateful to not have to grapple with But it's interesting, like that sense of despair and also the physical burden, the degree to which I feel very encumbered uh, and limited in terms of like what I can physically do. It's been very taxing on my body and really, really, really difficult to a greater degree than I expected even. And so like, I don't know what to make of all of that because it's left me in this place of feeling like, well, this is indisputably a a baby, a life worth protecting from a very, very young age. But this comes at a really, really real cost to the woman who's who's carrying it hmm. Yeah. Is this why you moved uh, back to Texas full time? No, I'd moved back to Texas uh, quite a few months before this happened. I'm actually moving back to New York to raise the baby because I want it to be raised in civilization. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really I'm, I'm horrified by the idea of like having to get a bigger car and doing the car seat thing. And then you drive around and it's suburban like I, I don't even live in a suburban part of Austin, but I have this like very visceral a- aversion to that. And for whatever reason, the idea of like, I don't know, I'm really worried about not being able to lose baby weight. And so the idea of being like an ultra walkable place where I'm forced to have just like movement as a part of my everyday routine is really appealing to me. So like my reasons for moving back to New York are like all vanity, basically.
0: That is totally appealing. I totally understand. Um, So what were we talking about before we got off on
1: this tangent? Um... Oh, about like moral intuitions, about when life begins. And I oh, was sort of right. talking yeah. about some the physical burden that this really, that, you know, is very challenging yeah, for Yeah,
0: it's not nothing. So something that I'm curious about, because, um, you know, you've talked a little bit about states' rights and, you know, and how, you know, this will revert back to the individual states. That's something that actually makes me really, really nervous, because I think that what we're looking at at this point is the appearance of kind of like multiple mini nations within the country. You're going to have a situation where in some states you can abort on demand, basically, you know, until the baby is emerging from the birth canal. Um, And then in others, you're going to have situations where you might end up being sent to jail if you have a miscarriage that looks to some prosecutor like it might be your fault. And even in a place as big and as diverse as the United States, that really seems untenable to me. It's like, you know, the the women, the two women in each of those disparate situations are not living in the same country in terms of what kind of freedoms they enjoy and what kind of rights they have. Do you... Have any similar concerns? Do you think that returning this to the States is like the least of the evils? Where do you fall on that?
1: Yeah, I think I think about this pretty differently than you do. Um, But I I do, you know, respect and I'm intrigued by your argument. Um, The way I look at it is decision making should be made as locally as possible because that's where it's most reflective of people's sentiments. And it's also where the politicians are most accountable to their constituency. So doing that at a state level versus a federal level isn't ideal. That's not that local of a level. You know, states like Texas or New York or Florida still have 30 million, 40 million people in them. So although that's better than 330 million people like we have within the country overall, That's still not a super granular level, but I think the more we drill down to granular levels, oftentimes the better it is. Um, I even see this with like, I think it's difficult to make school curriculum decisions, but I sure as hell would rather that be done at more of a school board level where that is actually going to be reflective of the values of a community than done at the state level or done at a federal level. Because I mean- legitimately, as I put in my piece, like somebody in Paducah, Kentucky is going to think about abortion most likely very differently than somebody in New York City will. Mm-hmm. And none of this, it's, it's like really imperfect, right? Like I'm not super satisfied with that. But I even think about that to a degree when I talk to my Texan family members who have lived in this state for a really long time, um, where it's like, well, legitimately, there are lots of Texans who are pro-choice and who are very uncomfortable with Texas's current abortion laws but a lot of my family members also are much happier to be living in a state where abortion is so much harder to come by because it's something that they see as as really not reflective of their sort of community and cultural values
0: that's interesting and maybe this is just because i'm not as community minded but you know it hadn't occurred to me to to be happy about somebody else having a harder time doing something that they might potentially want to do with their own body
1: oh i mean i'm a libertarian i struggle with that so much right because another thing that's not reflective of like many texans community values is like my freedom to do ecstasy when i want to right Mm -hmm. like i'm very well aware of the sort of inconsistency there or the abuses um that are opened up when you you know like there there's plural like there's there's It's this individual, fostering a sense of individualism in a sense that people can do what they want with their minds and their bodies is super, super important to me. But it is also like, at least the way I look at it is like, I feel like the degree to which abortion is widespread in this country, we have 600,000 abortions uh, each year down from a high of like 1.5 million um, in the 80s and 90s. Like I look at it as like a really genocidal thing. I think that's consistent with like, if you do believe these are, human lives, even from a very young stage, and yet we're systematically in a very widespread manner in great numbers ending them, it's something that like, I feel terribly sad about and really horrified by. And, you know, I have many friends who've had abortions. And so I try to be as understanding as possible to the fact that like, you know, the genocide type language is not something that's very sensitive to them. So I really keep that to a minimum. But at the same time, like, there's a Planned Parenthood really close to my house in Austin that is sort of now decommissioned or undergoing renovations or something, I don't know, because of the new abortion law. And it's right next to a bar I like to go to. And so sipping Mezcal and looking down at the abortion clinic and the abortion clinic dumpster is something that leaves me feeling like my insides are turning. And I think that's hard to relate to if if you don't have the same, like, visceral moral aversion to it the way that I do. That's,
0: you know, understandable. So... I think it's probably a good moment for us to segue from this pretty serious discussion to a topic that is a little bit more lighthearted, but also um, kind of related. But this part of the episode is being held back for premium subscribers. So if you wanna hear Liz and I talk about narcissistic memoir writers and the HBO show Winning Time, please visit femchaospod.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription. For $5 a month, you get access to extended cuts of most of our public episodes, plus special exclusive episodes just for premium subscribers, plus our whole back catalog of prior podcasts. Again, femchaospod.substack.com. Please sign up. We would appreciate your support. And with that, this has been Feminine Chaos. Thanks for joining me, Liz Wolf. Thanks for having me, Kat.